Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. We are starting what could end up being a two, a three, a four. I don't know how many parts this may take. There are actually only two study sheets. But uh, in the earlier class, we only got through the first point. And that's probably all we're going to get through in our class. So this may take us several weeks. But we are ta- starting a, a little mini-series called Sexuality, Marriage, and the Bible. Now, let me tell you why the topic came up. We are going through kind of a major theme this summer entitled Bible Answers for Life's Questions. And I let you ask the questions, and then we're just trying to come up with the Bible answers. Here are the four questions that were asked that spawned this study. Question number one, why are we so hard on homosexuals? I will tell you this. By the way, we'll actually address that more specifically in two or three lessons probably, but it's in the second study sheet. I will tell you this. I think that Christians today, by and large, approach that topic and people involved in that totally wrong. As a matter of fact, I think that in many cases we are very unchristian in the way we approach that. And I will explain to you what I mean when we get to that. Okay? Um, another question. Is it okay to live together before you get married? Yeah, raise your hand if you need a study sheet. Is it okay to live together before you get married? Another question. David had several wives and concubines. How come I can't? <laughs> and the fourth question was similar to that. The kings in the Bible had a bunch of wives. How come we can't have a bunch of wives? Well, that was obviously asked by a guy who ain't never been married before. I can tell you that. Um, So anyway, (laughs) very honest questions. Well, the Bible does have an answer. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do our best over the next few weeks to try and answer those questions as well as lay down some very, very important biblical principles that will help you and I make some wise decisions in these areas of our life. Now let me just, before we look at Hebrews 13, lay down a disclaimer. I have done some extensive research, uh, as I mentioned, on our age group and ministering to and helping meet the needs of where we are in life today and the things that you and I face in the professional world as young professionals. And I will tell you this, we face things that are a whole lot different than what our parents face. And it's changing all the time. So I've done a lot of research. And so here's my disclaimer. What we're about to study in the next few weeks is in no way intended to be an exhaustive dissertation on these subjects. There's no way to do that in this short amount of time. There are many resources, both secular and Christian, that you can go out onto the web and find that will help you go deeper into some of these subjects. And they're very, very good. I'll give you an example. John Piper has a, a, a blog and a series that he did where he answered some of these questions. And it's very long. So there are some good resources out there, and I would challenge you to go and find some of those and research some of this for yourself. Um, part of what helps us grow and learn is when we take the effort and the time to do it ourselves and study. So I want to challenge you to do that. What I'm hoping to be able to do is to give you some basic principles that will guide us in the decisions we have to make relative to this topic, okay? So, let's start today, sexuality, marriage, and the Bible. 
Our first verse, Hebrews chapter 13, look with me at verse number 4. The Bible says marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. All right, let's stop right there. One verse. Pretty powerful. A lot of stuff in here. By the way, there's, there's no hidden meanings here. It means exactly what it says. Okay? Well, what does it say? Well, let's start with the first part. Marriage should be honored by everybody. It is a proper, biblical, God-instituted unit that God says should be honored, respected, treated with value is what the word means there. And then the Bible addresses a specific part of marriage. It says, and the marriage bed should be kept pure. Now, what do you think that's talking about? Well, just to be perfectly blunt, it's talking about sex inside of marriage. And what does the Bible say about it? The marriage bed should be kept and is, is the implication here, a pure thing. You're going to see as we go through this that sexuality, physical sexuality in human beings is a God-given thing. He gave it to us. He meant for us to have it. And He meant for it to be a good thing. Just like everything else. And, and please understand, we're only addressing this one topic. Some of these principles apply to many other areas of our life. So it's not right for us as Christians to say, well, over here in this area, I'm really dogmatic about this. But over here in this area, where the same principle ought to apply, I'm a gross liberal. You know, it's, the principles apply to everything. So we're, please understand, we're just talking about one topic here. All right. So God says the good part. Marriage ought to be valued and honored. And the bed is pure and it will be kept that way. Don't defile it. But then he gives the negative side. He gives the warning. Notice what he says. For God will judge. God will try, convict, and sentence is what the word means. Krino is the Greek word translated judge. It literally means to try, to convict, and to sentence in essence. God will do that. To the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Now, the word, the phrase sexually immoral is the Greek word pornos. That's where we get our word pornography. It literally means to sell or to pass through is the concept. It's the idea in our society we would understand as being a prostitute. To give physical, sexual activity for money. That's the idea here. However, the word is used several times in the New Testament where it refers to that same type of activity when it is for free. So it, that's why in the English version it translates it many times sexual immorality of any form. Let me give you another example. <coughs> Leviticus chapter 18. In Leviticus chapter 18... In the Jewish law, God addresses, 
just about every form of sexual immorality you can think of. And by the way, he also tells his people, the Jews, where they got all these ideas. It says these are all the things that the people of the nations around you are doing, and so you're catching on to it. And he says, don't do it. What's the principle there? Just because everybody else is doing it, don't make it right. That's what got the Jews in trouble all through the Old Testament. It's still getting God's people in trouble today. Okay? So, just a little sideline there. A little principle. But Leviticus 18 deals with all forms of sexual immorality. So, it's not just one type. There are many forms. So, in this verse, God deals with two aspects of the misuse of sexuality. Number one, marital unfaithfulness. And number two, perversion in any form of the physical sexual intentions in marriage by people, whether married or not. Okay? So, does everybody understand that? And God says, that's wrong. Now, what I want us to do today, we're going to go through in this first lesson, we're going to go through three things. Number one, a biblical view of right and wrong. That's what we'll talk about today. Next week, we're going to talk about sexuality and mankind. Did God intend it for man? How did God intend for it to work? What is the problem? Why is it not working right? What are the things we have to deal with? And then finally, God's plan for sexuality. What is God's plan? Where in the Bible does God say it's okay, pardon me for being blunt, to have sex? Where in the Bible does God tell us in this situation it's okay? okay? And that's what we want to know. Uh, the bottom line is you're going to want to do it. It's part of human makeup. So if I want to do it, when can I do it? And God says it's okay. And we'll talk about that probably next week, okay? All right, look with me first of all. Today we're going to talk about a biblical view of right and wrong. One of the things that happens in society um, is that we, and, and we I mean human beings, we have a tendency to blur the lines of right and wrong. Um, there are some things that are application intensive. In other words, here's the principle. The application is different based upon people's lives and situations. However, the actual interpretation of right and wrong does not change. Okay? What I want to do today is I want to take us through five basic facts about a biblical view of right and wrong so we understand this. If we don't understand this, nothing else we talk about is going to matter. This is the foundation. If we're going to look at the Bible and figure out when is it right and when is it wrong, I have to know what is the biblical view of right and wrong. How do I determine that? So let's look at these five things. Number one, what is God's standard for right and wrong? It is the Bible. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. For all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So that the man of God will be perfect, completely furnished for every good work. The Scripture was given by inspiration of God and is profitable for a lot of things, but one of them is instruction in righteousness. What is that? Instructing me on what is right. What does God say is right? So what is God's standard of right and wrong? It is the Bible. Period. It's the Bible. It's not the Bible and. And another book. And Bill Crockett's opinion. 
and what society thinks. It's, that's not God's standard of truth. God's standard of truth is the Bible. Period. That's it. Okay? I was reading an article on this topic. And I had Googled it, and, and uh, there are secular and Christian articles I was reading. And this one happened to be a secular article, and I was reading down, and they, it, it appeared to be very antagonistic towards the biblical view of sexuality. And I got down to one section, and the guy that was writing the blog said this. He said, it is very apparent to anyone who reads an English version of the Bible today that it is not... God's infallible Word. It is men's opinions reinterpreted and written down so that we would have an idea of what God said. Immediately, I deleted that blog and didn't read nothing else. It was no good to me. Here's a guy who does not value the Scripture as the inerrant, infallible, God-breathed words of God. Well, then we have no common ground to discuss anything. This is our standard for truth. This is it. Okay? So we've got to establish that first. If we don't believe that, then everything else is just going to be an interesting discussion, but it's not going to help anybody. Okay? So that's the first thing. The second thing is, we've got to understand Satan's strategy. Now, I want you to take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to show you something that I think, personally, I hope you do, is very, very interesting when it comes to Satan's strategy, sexuality, and the problems we're having even today with this particular issue. I hope that everybody understands that in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, Peter wrote under inspiration this, Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Therefore, resist him. Okay? So, the Bible teaches us Satan is not our friend, he's our enemy. He's looking for ways to destroy our life. In Luke twenty-two thirty-one, Jesus told Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan desires to have you so he can sift you like wheat. Literally, he wants to rip your life apart. In John 10 and verse 10, Jesus said, The thief, Satan, comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. That's what he wants to do to my life. He wants to kill me. He wants to steal every joy I've got, and He wants to destroy me. But what did Jesus say in the latter part of the verse? But I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I told somebody the other day, I was talking to a group of people, and I said, you know, if there was no heaven and there was no hell and there was no God, living your life on this earth by the principles written in this book, the Bible, is still the best way to live life. You'll find the most joy, the most happiness. You'll have the most peace and contentment if you live by the principles of this book. So the truth is, Jesus said, I want you to have an abundant life full of peace and joy and happiness and fulfillment. And you can if you will live it the way I tell you to live it. Satan doesn't want me to live it that way. He wants to kill, to steal, and destroy my life. He wants to ruin my life. All right, I told you all that because I want you to see how he does that. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse number 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, don't miss this, did God really say? Hey, 
Is that really what the Bible means? I mean, come on. The thing was written 2,000 years ago. Aren't you being just a little open? Is that really what the Bible means when it says that? Don't be shocked. Satan's been putting that question in the minds of human beings ever since the first man and the first woman who was ever created. It's part of his strategy. Let's keep going. You're going to see the strategy develop. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Question, did God tell him not to touch it? No. He said don't eat it. You see what's happening? Satan plants a seed of doubt, and she's already getting confused. does the same thing to us. Does the Bible really mean that? Well, maybe I ought to reconsider this. Maybe I've been a little too harsh about this. Maybe I'm not open-mindedness enough. And all of a sudden, things start to get blurred. Let's keep going. He's not done yet. Verse 4. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You know what he said? Well, does the Bible really say that? Well, no, it doesn't. That's not what God meant. Let me tell you what God meant. And by the way, if you listen to me, life will be great. God just trying to put all these rules around you and make your life all miserable and chain you up with all these restrictions. Be free. If it feels good, do it. Have a great life. I mean, hey, come on. Everybody's doing it. It can't be all that bad. Oh, when do you start having kids? Mom and Dad, I want to go do this. Everybody's going. No, they're not. You ain't going. <laughs> Satan does everything he can to confuse our minds and distort us because he doesn't want us to know the truth. The truth will make you free. The truth will protect you from Satan destroying your life so if he has any hope at my life, he's got to get my mind off the truth. That's what he does. Let's keep going. You're going to see something very, very interesting as he begins to work. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave to some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, here's what happened. Satan said, did God really say... God doesn't really mean that. He just knows that if you do what you want to do, your life's going to be better. By the way, you're actually going to be like Him. He just doesn't want anybody to be like Him. Well, you know, that all sounds good, Mr. Devil, but I know what the Bible says, and, and even though it looks good, and I know it probably tastes good, and I know it probably make me smart, I'm not going to do it because God said not to do it. Is that what happened? No. Why did she give in? 
Well, it started with doubting the truth. It continued with her fleshly desires. You know how Satan gets us? James chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, the Bible teaches us Satan's plan of attack. James 1.13 says, Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. Because God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own sinful desires and enticed. Then when that, when that lust, that enticement, that desire gives fruit, it brings forth sin. Sin, when it's finished, brings forth what? Death. How does he do it? He comes to me and he finds that area in my life where I am the weakest. And he tempts me. You thought it was a coincidence, fellas, when you have trouble looking at a woman who is scantily clothed without thinking bad thoughts. You thought it was a shock that every station that you got to surfing the TV had some woman with half her clothes on. Satan knows what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. That's not coincidence. He begins to tempt us. Then all of a sudden we start thinking about it. That's why Philippians 4.8 says, Brethren, whatsoever things are true, honest, just, lovely, pure, of good report, of virtue and of praise, think about these things. Because as we think in our hearts, so are we. We commit sexual sin in our mind before we ever do it with our body. And so, Satan pulls us aside. He entices us. And then we end up giving in. Now, he keeps going. They gave in. I want you to notice verse number 7. Now remember, here's where sin came into the world. Verse 7, Genesis 3. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Look at the next phrase. And they realized they were naked. What? What? Look at chapter 2, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Why was there no shame in chapter 2 and verse 25? Because there was no sin. It was a pure, holy, God-given right thing. There was no sin. Sin comes in, and all of a sudden, what God intended to be pure and innocent becomes something of shame. And you know what happened. They sewed fig leaves together, covered themselves up, started hiding. God came to them walking in the cool of the day. He said, hey, Adam, Adam, where have you been? Where are you? By the way, I always thought that was kind of ironic. God, who knows everything and is everywhere, asking Adam, where are you? Like, I can't find you. That was for Adam's benefit, not God's. To let Adam know, you can't hide. I know where you are. Adam comes out. Adam, why are you hiding from me? Well, because we were naked and we were embarrassed. God said, who told you you were naked? How did you know that? Have you disobeyed me? Did you do what I told you 
not to do? By the way, did God know they'd already done it? Sure He did. Why did He ask the question? It was for their benefit. So they would realize it and admit it. Because only then can change take place. You know what I thought was ironic? You know the first concept of sin that hit the mind of mankind after they sinned was sexual. And it has gotten worse ever since. Why didn't they say, well, God, we were embarrassed because we disobeyed. We were embarrassed because we lied. We were embarrassed because we listened to the devil. No, we were embarrassed because we were naked. Sexuality. How interesting is that? Don't be shocked that sexuality is a huge area that Satan uses to destroy our lives. When it's done wrong. Okay? Now, let's go on to the next thing. What is God's design? Okay? Real quick, turn to Philippians chapter 1. Everybody still with me? Are, are you getting this? Does it make sense so far? Alright. Philippians chapter 1. By the way, don't get the idea it's a bad thing. I've got eight kids. I can tell you, it's a good thing. Okay? We just want to do it right. Okay? That's all we're doing. We just want to do it right. Alright? Philippians chapter 1. I want you to look at verse number 9. To me, this is one of the most powerful principles in the Scripture that we have a tendency, because a lot of times, because of our impatience, we have a tendency not to practice this. I want you to look at what Paul said to the Philippian church. Verse 9, chapter 1. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. He said, I'm praying that your love and your knowledge and your discernment will get better through the Scripture. Why? Verse 10. So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You know why Paul was praying that they, their knowledge and their discernment would get better? So that they could make decisions based upon what was best. Not what was convenient. Not what was quick. Not what was immediate. But what was best. How many times do you and I make decisions in our life based upon something other than the fact we believe it's the best decision? We do it a lot, don't we? You ever made a decision, bought something, and then two weeks later found the very same thing for half the price? Why, why didn't you wait? Why didn't we investigate a little bit more? I mean, it was literally half the price in the store, in the mall, right next to the one where I bought it. Well, why, why, why didn't I do that? Because i got to have it. i got to have it now. And, and by the way, it's on sale. It must be a deal. But was it best? No. Okay, That's a crude illustration. But the truth is, when it comes to sexuality and marriage, please hear me. You wait for what is best. Don't you settle for second best. God says, I will help you to grow in knowledge and love and discernment so you can discern what's best. Romans chapter 12, 
verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? So that you can prove, you can discern what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. God's will is perfect, complete. It is the best. So what is God's design for us? God's design is that we have the best. When God says sexuality is approved and good inside the bonds of marriage and outside the bonds of marriage, it's a bad thing. He's trying to give us what's best for our life. He's not trying to hurt us. He's not trying to deprive us of anything. He's not trying to make my life miserable. He's trying to give me what's best. Because that's what He wants for my life. So God's standard of right and wrong, the Scripture, Satan's strategy, to blur the truth and pull me aside with my lust. God's design is that we have the best. Now, I want you to turn to Matthew 19 real quick. We're almost done. Matthew 19... Let me show you about God's grace. You know, today, when you come to this topic, you look at people like me, and you say, well, you know, what is best is that you find God's perfect mate for your life, you get married, you have a bunch of kids, you live a wonderful life, and everything's great. But does everybody do that? I'm divorced. So what does that mean? I've been, I've been married to my wife, Denise, for 14 years. Have they been great? Absolutely they've been great. We have never had one problem in 14 years that I'm going to tell you about. But we've had a bunch of them. Life, life, that's just life. Okay? Don't look for this fairy tale story. There ain't one. That's life. But God helps us through that. So, I know what God's best is, but what happens when I don't do that? What happens when mankind blows it? Does God say, well, too bad, see you later? Or does God have a fix for it? He's got a fix. It's called grace. I want you to notice something in Matthew 19, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some of the Pharisees came to him to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Verse 4, very important. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Notice what he said. At the beginning, when God instituted this, God's best is for a man and a woman to be joined together in marriage and stay that way the rest of their life doing it the Bible way. At the beginning, that's what God intended. Let me ask you a question. Has man ever messed up anything that God intended? A couple of times. We do it all the time, don't we? We're human. We have a sin nature. That's why life is a struggle as a Christian. It's a great life because I know I'm winning. But it's still a battle. I mean, still, and we're going to talk about that next week. 
But I want you to notice what he says. Look what the Pharisees, they, they always got to try and get him. Verse 7. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Hey, if that's how it's supposed to be, then how come Moses is telling them they can get divorced? I mean, if that's how it's supposed to be, what about this? Look at Jesus' answer. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, because man messed it up. We do it all the time. But it was not this way from the beginning. Now, here's the principle. We ought to do everything that we possibly can to walk with the Lord, to understand the Scripture, and to make decisions based upon God's best for our life. Because when we don't do what's God's best, we always pay in some way. That's just the principle of the Scripture. However, God's grace is sufficient. The same grace and the same mercy... And the same blood that was offered at the cross and confirmed at the empty tomb. That same grace and that same mercy and that same love that took Bill Crockett as a lost, hell-bound sinner and changed my life and forgave me and took me from a suicide to a ministry in 15 years, that same grace can fix anything we mess up if... We realize it, and we go start doing it the way God intended for it to be done. Now, you're going to need to get a grasp on that for your own life and to be able to love and minister to and help other young adults who didn't do it right the first time. Because it happens. And I would venture to say with the number of people we got here, you got some sitting right here that's like me. We, we didn't do it right the first time. And I'm not talking about marriage and divorce. I'm talking about virginity and not doing it sexually the way it should have been. Let me tell you, there's probably more that way than we realize. It's okay. God's grace fixes all that. And you've got to understand that. Without God's grace, there is no hope. There's no reason to be here. However... If you're still doing it the right way, keep doing it the right way. You don't want to settle for second best. I can tell you that from experience. There are penalties and pains that you go through when you disobey God that you don't have to go through. Life is tough enough. Don't make it worse. That's the truth of the Bible. God's design is that we have the best. God's grace fixes it when we don't. Now, one more principle, we're going to stop. Just because something is recorded in the Bible, it does not mean that the Bible approves of it. It was written for our learning. Somebody says, and we'll talk a little bit more about polygamy next, or probably in a couple of weeks, but. Um, I was studying it. You know, there's really no place in the Bible where God says polygamy is wrong. You know that? There's really no verse in the Bible where God point blank says you shouldn't do that. Now, there are principles, and there are things that we'll look at. However, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean God approves of it. 
Just because it's in a Bible, it doesn't mean that it's okay. Judas went and hanged himself. That don't mean we ought to go out of here and all hang ourselves. Okay? Just because it's in a Bible doesn't mean... However, everything that was written was written for our learning. Romans 15, 4. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. That we through patience and comfort of the Scripture might have hope. Do you know that everything that is recorded in the Bible, God recorded for a reason, and there's something I can learn from it? How many of you have ever in your life learned from a mistake? I can tell you something true about your life. If you didn't, you made the same mistake again. We learn even from our mistakes. And so in the Bible, just because it's in there doesn't mean God's approved of it, but there is something for us to learn, okay? Now, we're going to have to stop there. Next week, we're going to talk about sexuality and mankind. How does all this work? Why is it so tough for us? And we're going to look at some examples of that, okay? Let's have a word of prayer real quick. Father, thank You for Your Word. Help us to understand it. Lord, give us a desire to obey it. Lord, I pray that You will defeat Satan. Help us to love You, to love each other. And give us strength to discern what's best and to do what's right. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes.